Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant, Billah, to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this son, one, this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last... My husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Thank, thank you, Leah. Um, God uses broken people. It's the title of the message today, and you might be thinking, well, I'm not broken. I don't need to hear this. Um, the Bible says we're all broken. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it, it reminds me of a story I want to tell you uh, uh, about a boy who's now part of this church. Kind of tell you a true story. Um, there, was a, there was a little boy, and he had a younger brother, a mom and a dad, and they lived out on the West Coast. And things were okay when, they was, when he was really little, but by the time he hit five or six, he noticed something was wrong. And his father had an addiction. He was an alcoholic and had a substance abuse problem. <clears throat> and uh, this would often cost him work, cost him money. And so finally they had to move east. And he got a job, and he was doing okay, but the addictions came on strong again. They found themselves having to declare bankruptcy, and then the, the addictions just got heavier and heavier to the point that the mother, who didn't have an education or really a, a job skill set, had to take her two boys and move into a one-bedroom apartment where the three of them lived in this one bedroom, and she found clerical work. And so she worked a lot of hours. She was emotionally struggling uh, tremendously. And those boys found themselves alone a lot and kind of raising themselves without money, without models, uh, without a lot of things. And so this one little boy, he, we'll call him Michael, Michael uh, began to get involved in things he shouldn't get. And when he was 11, he started stealing, started shoplifting, and then that progressed on with a couple other boys and began to do burglaries and rob homes as well as stores. And because uh, he lived in a low-income area, uh, there was a little trailer park there that had a trailer that was not uh, being used. It was abandoned. And so they began to put all their stuff, all the alcohol, all the cigarettes, the pornography, even 
pot that he began to get, as well as a myriad of other things that they would try to sell and use. And at school, he wasn't doing well at all. Matter of fact, his teachers told his mother that there was a good chance he was going to have to repeat the grade. So he's not doing well scholastically. He's not doing well socially, emotionally, financially. Uh, they are at uh, a terrible place. And it's just his mom, and his mom starts to reach out to a couple of churches because his dad is in such a bad place, he can't be reached. And she found a church that, was, that talked to her, and so she told the boys, okay, we're going to church this weekend. So she made her sons go to the church, and Michael did not want to be there at all. He's sitting in a seat by himself when another student said, hey, would you like to come sit with us? So he did, because he didn't know anybody, and he did that. And the next week, his mother brought him back, and he was in Sunday school. And in Sunday school, there was a volunteer leader, a volunteer worker that began to get to know him, ask him questions, encourage him, speak life into his life. And as he did that, he uh, began to slowly start to have an engagement with church and with God, and by the time he was 13, he, he and his brother both committed his life to Christ, and then he transitioned out of the, started to make the transition out of the life of crime, or so to speak, of theft and robbery. It was still very hard with his mother and with his little brother. They still had nothing. Life was still hard. A lot of things he couldn't afford, a lot of things he never got, a lot of things that he needed, but he continued and he continued to grow in his faith, and those volunteer church leaders continued to pour life into him. And that's who he saw as a, as a role model. Here's a boy from a single mom home, a single mom who can't make ends meet, who has to work a lot, who has a lot of emotional issues that can inhibit her from really connecting with him. A little brother he felt somewhat responsible for constantly stealing so that he could have something, not being, not in a good place academically. But then there are some people through the power of the gospel that reach out to him, and his life begins to change. A boy with nothing, a boy that was going nowhere, a boy that was only headed to trouble, his life begins to change. And that boy today is our executive pastor named Alan Michael, and there's his family right there. God works through broken people. And that's the story that we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And each of them is broken in their own way. Just as many of us are broken in our own way. For us to really understand the story, I want to do a recap and just remind you of the travels of Abraham. Remember, a covenant is made with Abraham by God that if uh, I will, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to use your seed to make a great nation. This is where the nation of Israel uh, originally comes from, from the covenant. And then he has a son. And he has a son, Ishmael, because he doesn't trust God. And Sarah doesn't trust God. It's not happened fast enough. And then eventually he has his son, Isaac, who is the father of Jacob and Esau. We see that Abraham, this story started in Ur, right down here at the bottom right. 
And God calls them out of Ur, which at the time was the metropolitan capital of the world, so to speak. It was the most progressive city in the known world. It was the most affluent. It had the most technology. It had indoor, some of the homes even had indoor plumbing and running water, which was unheard of. But in that great city of Ur, it was true. But God called Abraham out of Ur. He said, and I want you to follow me to a land I will give you, to a place you do not know. So he with his family began to travel. But when they get to Haran, they stop. And some scholars believe that this is where his great-grandparents came from and that he still had relatives. His father was with him. But then his father dies, and he tells him to continue. I want you to go to that place, to Canaan, and I want you to come and bring your people. So he continues this journey, and he comes down to the Bethel, Jericho, Jerusalem area. And while he's there, a famine strikes, and so he goes to, to Egypt which is the breadbasket of the world at that point. They have plenty of food and plenty of grain, and he goes there. But while he was there, the Pharaoh notices his wife, who's beautiful. And Jacob, in his fear, says, tell him you're my sister. And so the Pharaoh takes her. But after taking her, he has a dream, and plagues begin to break out amongst the people. And so he knows something's not right in that dream. It's revealed to him that that's not Joseph's sister, that's his wife. So he tells Joseph to get out and take his people with him. And so they do, and they come back to the land of Canaan. And that's where, again, the dream is given, the vision is given that you will be, I will start a mighty nation from you, and so I will give you a son. But after 20 years, it seems like, God's not doing anything, so Sarah and Abraham take it into their own hands, and he has a baby by his maidservant, by her maidservant, um, and her name is Hagar, and we studied her a a few weeks ago, but that was not the promise. Eventually, just a year later, uh, a a few years later, he does have the son, and his name is Isaac, and he promises it through Isaac. I will make a nation. The lineage of the one who is to come shall come through Isaac. So Isaac has a couple of children himself. As a matter of fact, he goes back. Abraham sends a servant back to Haran to find a wife for him. and brings him back to Isaac, Rebekah. And so he marries Rebekah, and they have two children. And they're twins. And God tells him, like, says this. He said, the seed, the promise will come through the younger son. The older son, the first to come out was Esau. And Esau was, the Bible tells us, was ruddy and hairy. And he was a man's man. And his dad really connected him. And the second one was Jacob. And all his life, Jacob connected with his mom and Esau connected with his dad. And there was a great space between the two of them. Even though God had told Isaac that the promise will come through Jacob, but he was going to give it to Esau anyway. So uh, Jacob, his name means trickster or deceiver, and eventually his name is changed to what? Israel. This is where the nation of Israel comes. This is where the name Israelis come from, from Israel. He's changed to Israel. El remembers God, one who struggles with God. Here's a broken man who struggles with God through all his life. And so at that point, um, One day, uh, he decides to deceive his brother. His brother's been out hunting in the hot hot weather, and he comes in, and he's famished, he's hungry, he's thirsty, and he's had one too many concussions because he's been playing sports, contact sports, and so he comes in, and and he goes, I need some of this soup, and he goes, give me your birthright, and he goes, okay, and he gives him his birthright, and so here's his birthright, and so he thinks, I'm not too worried about it because dad has to give the blessing on top of this for this all to be verified. And so then 
Jacob, along with his mother, decide we'll trick Father because he's blind and he can't see. And what we'll do is we'll put uh, an animal skin on him because Esau was very hairy and he'll smell it and he'll feel it and he'll think it's Esau. So that's exactly what he did. And he was able to trick his father into giving him the blessing. So he has the birthright and now the blessing that goes with it. And he has deceived Esau. And Esau realized what's happened. And he makes a, a promise to kill Jacob as soon as his father's died. As soon as his father's dead, or if not before, you will be dead. And so his mother learns of this and she says, you need to go to my brother's house up in Haran. Maybe you'll even find a wife or something up there. But you've got to go because you're, until your brother's anger uh, comes down. And I'll send for you at some point. But it was not to be, for he left and he took that long journey back to Haran. And when he gets to Haran, just like his mother, who was from there, who was, who was discovered by a servant, God led him to a well. And just like that same well, which he has no idea, Rebecca was at. Now he comes, just coincidentally, or the providence of God, to that same well. And he meets her daughter, or her, actually her niece. It's Laban, her brother's daughter, and her name is Rachel. She's very attractive. He notices her wide off, and he even shows his manly brute by taking this big stone off the well so she can water her sheep. And then she runs home with him. She tells her, her dad, Laban, who's his uncle, who he is, and that's where we pick up in this story. That's where we are. So let's begin reading this story. And before we do, I want to remind you of two things. In the Bible, there's two types of passages. The first one is called prescriptive. We've talked about this. The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. Those are prescriptions. This is specifically what you should do. Um, also, um, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. We know the gospel. These are all specific prescriptions. This is what you should do, and this is what you should not do. But a lot of the Bible is not prescription. It's description. It's describing what has occurred. Just describing what happened. This is not a prescriptive scripture. This is a dysfunctional family if you've ever seen one. It will make you proud of your family, okay? This is a very dysfunctional family. And they're broken. And God is sharing that God is allowing this theory to be shown and stored because we see what? Number one, God can use broken people, and God is sufficient, and that we're all broken. So we see that in this story. Now let's begin to read in the 13th verse of the 29th chapter of Genesis. In Genesis 29, beginning with the 13th verse. And soon Laban who is his uncle. He is meeting him for the first time. Remember, he's made this actually 600-mile trek to Haran to get away from his brother. But he's just met his, Laban's daughter, Rachel, who is a cousin of his. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. What are all these things? He tells him the story. This is why I'm here. I had to get away from my brother. Well, how, why do you have to get away from brother? Well, this happened. I kind of did this. I kind of did that. And so now I'm here. And my mom sent me. So he's told him the story. And the Bible says, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So Jacob stays a month. He's helping. He's working. At the end of that month, Laban, who by the way, he's meeting his match in people who are deceptive and a trickster in Laban. Then Laban says to Jacob, because you are my kin, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. 
Now, it's not that he's going to give him anything he wants. He just wants to make sure your offer may be better than the one I was going to give you. That's Laban. He's the, Laban is the uh, conniver. <clears throat> now, Laban had two daughters, and the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. He's got two daughters. He's seen the attention that he's been paying to Rachel. He knows how much he likes Rachel. He probably knows this is coming. So he's thinking, okay, what would you do? What would you like? In verse 17, the Bible says his oldest daughter, Leah's eyes were weak. Now, that didn't mean that she just couldn't see well. And the reason we know that, because of the next verse, in continuing 17. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So it wasn't just that Leah... Uh, had weak eyes, okay? There's something about these eyes, apparently, uh, according to some of the Jewish scholars, that when you see her, you know, we don't know if she was cross-eyed, bug-eyed, or both, okay? But there was something, when you saw her, you go, woo, you know what I mean? When Rachel, you could automatically know, Leah ain't quite right. But Rachel, what does it say? Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Her face, her figure, she's beautiful, so you've got, you know, the Miss America and then the poor little ugly duckling. You've got Leah, okay? And so here's the story here with the two of them. And what does the Bible say? It said, Jacob loved Rachel. Well, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. And he said, and by the way, I think it's really interesting. Sometimes we talk about how primitive the culture was back then. And can you believe that, that he would base it on her looks? I'm so glad that's not where we are today uh, in our culture that we don't, you know, we've come so far uh, from that. We're not that shallow anymore. I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now that's crazy talk right there. The reason being is the average wage uh, for a worker would have been about a shekel if you were at the top end, maybe managing position, maybe a shekel and a half. So a shekel a month. So that's 12 shekels a year. And the mohar, which is the bride price that you would pay a father for a daughter, you would give them this money uh, when you married them, would be anywhere from 30 to 40 shekels. That was the normal. 30 means it's okay. 40 means like, man, this is a big deal. And if you did more than that, that was just crazy. And maybe, maybe your daughter was, had significant issues and problems. You might only do 20. Well, here's, here's Jacob saying, hubba, hubba, I'll do whatever. And he's thinking, I just want her to know how much I honor her and how wonderful she is. And I'm not thinking with my head. I'll do seven years. And Laban said, I'm good with that. That sounds like a good deal to me. That's double what I would have gotten. And so we see here that the Bible says, I'll serve you seven years for, specifically, your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Just stay with me. He doesn't say, yes, it's a deal. Let's make a contract. He goes, well, you know, it's better, better for you than somebody else, I guess. Why don't you stay here and keep working because you've done a good job. And I notice our livestock are increasing and you are much better than my last manager. I'd like you to say, let's just stay here and absolutely I'll take you up on your seven-year deal. And so the Bible says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel that seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, which by the way, this is very uncharacteristic that you would say this to your father-in-law, give me my wife that I may go into her. I mean, there's a lot of hormones and a lot of pent-up frustration. He's ready to go, and for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people and the place, and they had a feast. This is a wedding feast, and it goes for a week, but here's the initial night, the wedding feast. But But continue here. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, the one with the eye issue, and he brought her to Jacob and went into her. 
How did that happen? You may be thinking, how in the world did it happen? Didn't he know? Well, first of all, it's dark. There's no lights. There's no electricity. Number two, they've just had a feast, which means they've probably been drinking. So he's been drinking. And number three in that culture, just like we see now, the veil of a wife. Uh, when a, Many women will wear a veil. Well, they would wear a complete veil. And we still see this in other cultures in the Mideast today. So you would wear that, that veil into the tent, where it's dark, he's been drunk, and what do he say? I'm just ready to go. Let's go. Where, where is it? Okay, so you put all those together, I can totally see how that would happen. And so the Bible says that, in verse 25, in the, mor- in the morning, behold, it was Leah. What? I married who? And so uh, Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me. What have you done to me? Why have you deceived me? Why have you tricked me? I I wonder if that point, if he remembers back to how he deceived his father, how he deceived Isaac, because Isaac couldn't see, so it was in the dark. And so he was deceived. He thought he was making a commitment to one child when actually he was making a commitment to another. He thought he was blessing one and he was blessing another. And that's exactly what's happened to Jacob. In the darkness, he's been deceived. It's been changed. And remember, we read earlier, said, and he told Laban all these things. And Laban's probably just smiling. Deceived, huh? Thought you were getting one, did the other. It's that, I thought that's what you did. But in, in, in addition to that, by the way, it's not our custom here, he says, to, to do that. Um, because we always let the older go first. And so he complete, complete this week, I tell you what. I'll tell you what I'll do for you. i got a deal for you, Jacob. If you will complete this week, this marriage, then I will give you Rachel and you'll have both wives. Won't that be a good deal? <laughs> it's not. And that's why the Bible never endorses polygamy. That's why God always says one woman, one man. And this is a great story why you wouldn't want that. And it continues. Complete the week of this one and I'll give you the other one in return for serving me another seven years. And he's probably thinking, well, I'm, all right, I've got her. I'm, I'm happy to end up seven years. I can't really go back to my brother. Okay, I'll do this. And Jacob did so. And then the Bible says, and he completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be the wife. So now they're both married at the same time. And the Bible says in verse 30, so Jacob went to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, literally it means not loved, love, love, he opened her womb. So he see, God sees that Leah, she's the thrown in. She's the throw in. Uh, have you ever imagined how Leah must have felt? My dad has made me marry this man. And maybe she's thinking, okay, at least there's somebody that'll take me and I'll be married. That'll be good. He's had to work this seven years. Now, I know he wanted my sister, but, you know, she's always been the pretty girl. She's always gotten uh, class president. She's always gotten everything, and I've always gotten nothing. You know, she'll just have to deal with it. And so maybe she thinks this, and then all of a sudden, here she is stuck with Rachel and Jacob, and it's worse than she ever thought because Jacob loves Rachel, and he doesn't love Leah at all. She is in marriage hell, and she's under the same roof. She sees it. She watches it. She lives it out every day. But then God blesses her, the Bible says. And the Bible says that when the Lord saw saw Leah was hated, that he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called him Reuben. For she said, because of the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will leave me, will love me. Reuben, that word ben, what does it mean? 
son. Anytime you see that word ben in the Bible, it's son. All right, so ru is a derivative of seeing. See a son, see a son. And she shows it to her husband thinking, now he will love me. Now he will respect me. Now I will be, he will see me. He will know that I exist. And the Bible says, for now a husband will but it was not to be. Then she conceived another son and she bore him. Because the Lord has heard, I am hated. He has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon, which means the Lord heard. She heard, God heard her cry. She said, at least he's heard me. He's seen my affliction. Now he hears me. And so he's given me another son. Surely my husband will notice me now. Surely he will love me now. But that was not to be. And now this time my husband, the Bible says, and she called the name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son. And he said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. I'm giving him three sons. Surely he'll feel a connection and attachment to me at this point. I'll call him Levi, who incidentally becomes the tribe of priests, the Levite priests. But still, it wouldn't be so. And then she conceived again, and this time she bore a son. This time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah. Judah means to praise. It means to worship. I've had those three sons, and it wasn't enough, but I'm going to thank God. I'm going to praise the Lord. And she uses the word Lord here. I don't know. The personal name of God at that time. Not Elohim, just the God, but the God, my God, our God. She uses that term, and she said, he's, he's seen me. He's heard me. He's, he's connected to me, and I will worship him. I will make him enough. Even though she has been treated horribly, God still uses the broken people because you know where the seed comes from. Okay, we, we said it comes from Abraham. It's going to go to Isaac, to Jacob. But it's not through his favored wife, Rachel. It's through Leah, his neglected wife. And then she has these three children. And the fourth one is Judah. What, where, where does Christ come from? From the line of Judah. Judah will be the one from which the Messiah will ultimately come from. It's from the favored wife, not the favorite. It's from the disinterested and the overlooked wife. It's from who? Leah. God sees, God hears, and he blesses her. And her name is now smoking. She becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. God hears, God sees, God knows. Amazing story. Again, it's not a prescriptive, it's a descriptive of a dysfunctional, broken family with broken people. Broken people who started with his grandmother and his grandfather, and then with his mother and his father, and then now with him. And we see this brokenness, and ultimately, even we'll see, because of these two wives, the brothers hate each other. That's why Leah's brothers eventually sell Rachel's son, Joseph, into slavery. And you know who bought him, by the way? The Ishmaelites were the slave traders. That's more to come. But nevertheless, so the truth is for us today, there are a few things for us to glean from this. First of all, uh, brokenness comes because of two reasons. Brokenness first comes because of loss. Sometimes it's because we lose someone that we love very much, or maybe we lose uh, something, uh, a home or whatever, a job. We, we, lo- we, we suffer a loss, and it causes brokenness in our heart. Sometimes, though, we suffer loss because of sin. 
because of our sin, because we make horrible decisions. We see um, Isaac making a horrible decision. We see Jacob making horrible decisions. And then there, the third one, it's with the sin of other people. The problem is here that Jacob's children will struggle and suffer because of the decisions he's made and because of the decisions his uncle has made. And we see this brokenness amongst all of them. So we see brokenness comes from loss, it comes from our sin, and it comes from other sins. Sometimes it has nothing to do with you, i.e. see Leah. But God is the God who is in the brokenness business. He loves to take broken people and broken things and renew them and restore them. And that brings us to our perspective. When loss happens, when sin happens, when hard times happen, how do you respond? Well, the first philosophy is cynicism. That's the way a lot of our culture handles it. You know what? Life stinks. It's just terrible. And there's nothing we can do. God can't do anything. God doesn't do anything. He doesn't hear. He doesn't see. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. And we can become cynical. We can become stoic. That's what a lot of people do. The second response can be this. Self. You know what? This is my fault. I'm just a loser. I can't get anything right. I can't do anything. And I'm just, I've caused all this. It's it's me. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'll never succeed. This is just my life, and this is just what I've done. Number three, the situation. We can blame it on the situation. You know, if I'd had better parents, I'd had a better phone home, if I'd had a better job, if I had kids, if I had a better husband, if I had better kids, we can go on and do that and blame it and look at others and point at someone else and say, that's why. I can't help it because this is my situation. The only response that will bring any life is that of salvation. Recognizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I am broken and I need a Savior. I can't fix it myself. I can't fix a situation. I can't fix others. God, I need you to receive me and to renew me and to redeem me in my brokenness. The salvation of the gospel. What does the gospel teach us in this instance? That God works in spite of our sin. God works in spite of us. God is still sovereign in control. Number two, God's salvation is for those who recognize they need it. We can only come to God if we recognize our need for him. Do you recognize your need for him? And you may be sitting here this morning, you know, I'm not broken and I don't really get into this kind of stuff. I don't really want to hear about it. I'm not broken. Can I tell you this? You are. But here's the other thing. But you can be broken like others. It's only, let me tell you something. It's only one job loss away or one divorce away or one child who's addicted to drugs away. You're just one step away from losing health. One step away from suffering a loss. It only takes one step and we could be telling a story about you. So recognize the grace of God has been given to us and that even when we're broken, when we're broken, we can most see him when we open up our heart and say, God, you know my brokenness and I'm asking you to heal me because the third point is this, God redeems all brokenness for those who believe in him. I believe that with all my heart. I just told you the Alan Michael family. Also in uh, Revelation chapter 21, we know even if it's not in this life, it'll be in the next life to come because the Bible tells us toward the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, 
that there's coming a day where there'll be no more tears and where God will make everything new. What is he saying by that, making everything new? In other words, he will restore everything to perfection, everything that was be all those we have lost who are in Christ Jesus, uh, those, those hurts, those pains. God's going to renew it, and he's going to make it new life again as you had dreamed, as you had wished, as you really needed it with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth to come. And that's the promise that we have, even in great loss, to know that our hope is in Jesus Christ and his ability, God Almighty, to redeem our brokenness. Sometimes that happens here. Sometimes that's completed in the new life to come. But God promises it will come through the power of the gospel. Do you know him? Have you taken the time to transfer your trust from what you could do? Quit trying to just be good and recognize that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And you just simply have to transfer your trust to him and say, God, I recognize I'm broken. Forgive me. Be my Savior. Be my God. God, redeem me. Have you done that? I love the story of Leah. The brokenness of Leah produces Judah. And Judah's broken too, but God ultimately will use Judah and his children and his grandchildren, his grandchildren to one day it comes to Christ. Let me finish with this story about another boy who was here in our church. There was a lady who, when she was four years old, her mother died. And this was this boy's mother. His grandmother died when his mom was just four years old. His dad, uh, not long after that, married someone else who had kids. And she ended up kind of being dragged along, but then sent to some other relatives and sent to some other friends and just found herself bouncing around all over with no mother, no father she could reach out to, no grandparents. And then... When she was 15, she met a boy, a boy that seemed nice, a boy that gave her hope. And she began dating him, even though he was out of high school and in college. And when she was 16, uh, she got pregnant and that boy disappeared. He didn't live there and he left, went to college and never heard from him again. He would disappear. Then um, she has the baby and here she is, a teenage mom, teenage single mom. She begins to just take whatever work she can and means she's working a lot of hours to try to support her team. Because remember, she doesn't have a mother or grandmother or father. And she's just trying to make ends meet. And as she does, she has this little boy. And he's at two years old. He's already feeling lonely and crying every time his mother leaves because that's his world. Eventually, she's able to connect with um, the step, uh, her she gets married to another husband, but it's not a good situation. But he has another family, and so she begins to try to connect with, with a step-grandmother. And that relationship will not last, but he continues that relationship with his step-grandmother who will watch him while she's at work. And she begins to speak some life into him. Even though they're, no, they're not blood relative at all, she begins to speak life and encouraging words to him. And she sees him pray, and he prays for, she prays for him. And he begins to spend more and more time. And one day, when his mom comes to get him, she goes, you know, I wish I had four more grandchildren just like him. And that little boy, you know, he's five or six years old, he's so encouraged. Life has been spoken to him. He's never heard anything like that. He's so connected to his step-grandmother. 
And she continues, and she begins to take him to church, and he realizes she's a Christian. And, and although she has a very rough life at home, and oh, she's being abused, and there's a lot of tears. When she goes to church, she thanks God. She's thanking him, and she's worshiping him, and she's praising him, and this little boy is watching this. And after a while, it starts to become real to him. And he finds himself at age 13 thinking about his, great, his grandmother, his step-grandmother, and thinking about her faith and, and thinking about God and, and being torn with the loneliness that he has through all the things that have happened to him, of not having a father, not having sisters and brothers, a mother that's largely absent. And during that time, his grandmother dies. And he said, I never felt so alone in all my life. The one person I felt really loved me and really wanted me and really recognized me, she's gone. But he said, but in that, her words became even louder. And I remember how she shared the gospel with me. And so I committed my life to Christ. And it was hard. And I found myself bouncing around home to home and family and extended family and step family and friends. I played sports in high school. I was a really good football player and got recognized by Texas Magazine. But then I broke my ankle my senior year. That was going to be the way I went to college. I shattered my ankle. And so all those scholarships offers dried up. I tried to go to junior college for a semester, but I couldn't afford it. So I had to come home and um, I met someone and uh, we were to get married, and I ended up having two children, and finally trying to get into school and trying to work and support a family, but then my, my wife left. It's now all of a sudden I'm a single dad, and so he was a single dad just trying to make it, and he had some opportunities to go and do something else, but it would require him leaving, and he said, I, I knew what it was like to grow up without a dad and without somebody in my life, so I committed to do this for my children. So as a single dad, about 17 years ago, he agrees to be a part of the first group of this church. There's only about 13 of us, 13, 14 of us, and he's one of them. And God uses him. God uses him. He's the best pastoral care minister. He's the best in that that I've ever seen in my life. And he comes and volunteers with us as a single dad. And by the way, there was another woman who was a single mom who ended up being a huge instrument used by God for our church. And he stayed with us the first five years, and then he left, and he went on. And um, he ended up getting married. God gave him a beautiful family. And then about four or five months ago, we hired him to be our assistant pastor, Tino Smith. And this is a picture of Tino and his family now. God redeems broken people. God redeems our brokenness if we surrender to him. Hey, it was 40 years of loneliness and disappointment. 40 years, but now God is using him immensely. Matter of fact, you got Alan Michael that I showed at the beginning. Can I tell you this? Tino was a huge part of our first five years. I don't know that we'd be here like we are without him. And Alan of the last 10 years, God put those two guys who came from single moms, moms who were overlooked, moms who were overwhelmed, who couldn't see how any life could be, who worried about could their children become anything. And God uses them. And you're here today because of Tino because of Alan, because of God's redemptive glory. Do you know my Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that even in our brokenness, God, you can use us. You can take the most difficult stories, Lord, when we have no one, we have nothing, when we live in poverty, 
when we live in pain, when we live in loneliness, when we live without hope. And God, I thank you that you said when we cry out to you, you hear our cries. You see us just like you saw Leah. You heard Leah. You attached yourself to Leah. And then she worshiped you. And God, when we come to that place where we say, God, I am broken, but you are my Savior. Forgive me. Be my God. Be my Savior. God, use me. And God, I will trust you even in the pain, even in the darkness. And I believe that one day you will renew this for your glory. But until that time, Lord, I will trust, even in the pain, even in the hurt, in the brokenness. I choose to believe and trust you, O Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.